Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org and author, who shares his views on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and why he believes now is the time for a global movement demanding nuclear de-escalation. Michael Hansen, executive director of the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution, who describes the formidable influence wielded by the Alabama Power Company and its impact on ratepayers and climate policy. And Alex Press, staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, who talks about the momentum of Starbucks Workers' National Union Drive and the importance of the organizing drive for the U.S. labor movement. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Days after leaving office, former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez was arrested and set to be extradited to the United States on drug charges. From 2014 to January 2022, the right-wing president was a staunch ally of Washington on the war on drugs and immigration policy. After Washington requested his extradition on drug charges, Honduran police arrested Hernandez, and he now faces indictment and a trial in the U.S. In 2018, the former president's brother, Honduran Congressman Tony Hernandez, was arrested by U.S. authorities on weapons and drug trafficking charges. In 2021, he was sentenced to life in prison. The Nation magazine reports that the former president had been under investigation by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration since 2013. During his eight years in office, the conservative head of state was tied to scandals over stolen public funds, fraudulent elections, and state repression. But despite his corruption and violence, the U.S. State Department and Pentagon maintained Hernandez as a close ally. Honduran activist Juan Lopez, who was imprisoned by Hernandez's government, charges that the U.S. knew the president was involved in narco-trafficking while he was in power, but they still supported him. Hernandez became head of Honduras National Congress after the 2009 U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the democratically elected government of progressive President Manuel Zelaya. Under Hernandez, government special forces were accused of torturing and killing dissidents. In 2019, the U.S. State Department provided Hernandez $1 million in surveillance equipment. During the COVID pandemic, real estate investors bought a record number of homes in minority neighborhoods across the U.S. The housing grab contributed to a dramatic spike in home prices, freezing out many first-time African-American home buyers who weren't able to begin building home equity for future generations. The lower rate of home ownership among communities of color has been an important factor in a lower rate of overall wealth accumulation. According to the Washington Post, neighborhoods where a majority of residents are black have been heavily targeted by institutional housing investors. Last year, 30% of home sales in majority black neighborhoods went to investors, compared with 12% in other zip codes. The realty firm Redfin, which compiled the data, 
concluded black neighborhoods are undervalued and more attractive to investors, in effect driving out local prospective buyers in communities of color. Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, recently criticized private equity firms and corporate landlords for buying up properties to raise rents and force renters out of their homes, cut services, and price out family home buyers. Texas progressives had some major victories in the first primary election of the 2022 midterms. In the midst of a continued right-wing shift in state politics, three progressive candidates won or advanced into congressional runoff elections scheduled for May 24th. All three were endorsed by New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Former Austin City Councilman Greg Kassar won over 60% of the vote to win his primary. He made his mark as a progressive by pushing for cuts in the Austin City police budget and sought to reverse policies that criminalized the homeless. In Metro Dallas, state representative and voting rights activist Jasmine Crockett led the vote total going into the runoff. She was endorsed by the Working Families Party. In South Texas, immigration lawyer Jessica Cisneros forced anti-abortion conservative incumbent Henry Cuellar into a runoff. The newly drawn district map is now seen as more favorable to Cisneros, while Cuellar is currently under FBI investigation. However, The Guardian reports the impact of GOP voter suppression laws could clearly be seen when in both Harris and El Paso counties, nearly 30 percent of mail-in ballots were flagged for disqualification. In a tightly contested general election, that could be more than enough to swing the outcome. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Before launching Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin reminded the world that his nation was a nuclear power. Once the invasion began, and the Russian military failed to quickly take control of Ukraine's major cities, Putin placed his nuclear forces on high alert. With Western nations united in imposing harsh economic sanctions on Russia's economy, a U.S. oil embargo, and the call by Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky, for NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over his nation's airspace, the risk of a wider and far more dangerous war has increased. Putin has told foreign countries not to interfere in his invasion of Ukraine, warning that such intervention could lead to, quote, consequences they have never seen, unquote. Not since the darkest days of the Cold War has the world witnessed the specter of nuclear warfare that, if deliberately or accidentally launched, could destroy our world. Your reporter spoke with Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org and author, who shares his views on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and why he believes now is the time for a global movement demanding nuclear de-escalation. A month ago, I could not have imagined that Russian forces would be bombing Kiev. I think that almost all Kremlin watchers were surprised, astonished, when Russian forces went beyond eastern Ukraine, which was, was somewhat expected at that point, 
and really wanting to go after the whole country. And these uh, so-called tactical nuclear weapons, uh, they're a jump on a very conceivably quick escalator to all-out nuclear war. So it is, it is frightening. I think that the idiots who are calling for a no-fly zone, which sounds nice, it's like uh, candy around poison, say, oh, yeah, the U.S. or NATO should impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. That's sort of asking for World War III. There, there are all sorts of Russian planes uh, in that airspace. You want to go out there and shoot them down and get into dogfights. Uh, I'm not aware of any uh, Russian-U.S. conflict militarily for almost a century. Uh, so why would we do that in terms of direct conflict? It's just uh, it's a it's a recipe for insanity. And um, clearly, Biden does not want that to happen. And uh, he canceled a scheduled U.S. missile test, uh, so not to uh, rattle things further when Putin made his irresponsible announcement of putting Russian nuclear forces on alert. Biden did not do the same, which was, was smart. Norman, I, I did want to ask you about uh, over the recent decades, we've seen existing nuclear treaties with Russia disappear. Yeah. The, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Treaty that we talked about, also the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. I believe START II is the only one that's left. In this climate, with the war raging in Ukraine, it's probably not the most opportune time to sit down with Russia to hammer out a new set of arms control agreements. But of course, it's really that much more critical to do with all that's going on, with the threat Absolutely. of war looming. Yeah, there was a uh, report uh, about a week ago that uh, the U.S. had pulled out of their routine arms control negotiations with Russia. Hopefully that's very, very temporary. As you mentioned, uh, the INF Treaty, the Inter Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty uh, that was implemented in the late 1980s, President Trump canceled it and pulled out. Uh, and that was one of, the, one of the many terrible things that uh, Trump did. And that came after President George W. Bush pulled the U.S. out of the ABM uh, treaty in 2002. So, you know, when you step back, I think the, the major transgressor on nuclear arms and disarmament arms control issues, it has been the United States. I mean, you know, there are no saints in the Kremlin around this. And to have this nuclear arsenal on each side and both sides is horrible. Uh, that said, it, the, uni, the U.S. government has been the main driver of the nuclear arms race. You would almost never know that from our mass media and certainly not from Congress. And we have a lot of people like Chris Murphy in the Senate who are just going along with the Cold War program. It's not only disgusting, but it's very dangerous. One thing we don't have today in this country is a powerful peace movement, as we did in the 80s when those intermediate-range nuclear missiles were placed in Europe. You're very connected with the activist groups all across this country and internationally, Norman. What's the possibility that this conflict in Ukraine could spark a, a re-energizing of a peace movement in this country and other nations around the world to really put the pressure on governments, wherever they are, to take the risk out of a, a possible... A nuclear conflict that we would not survive. The potential is there to organize really strong movements against war, against uh, nuclear weapons arsenals. 
it's imperative we're way behind the eight ball right now because we don't have such strong movements. There's certainly the seeds have been planted. Uh, there are some sprouts. People are doing a lot of organizing, not only at RootsAction.org, but Code Pink and Just Foreign Policy, uh, Progressive Democrats of America. These groups are, are steadfastly uh, trying to organize uh, for nonviolent solutions in a very dangerous uh, international situation right now. I think that we need to have a very clear set of uh, perceptions and principles that condemn what Russia is doing in Ukraine and condemn NATO as well for its insistence on expansion and its militarism in the thrall of the arms dealers. And so there's no allies here in Washington or in Moscow in terms of policy, as always, the creative, essential changes are going to have to come from the grassroots. That was Norman Solomon, co-founder of RootsAction.org and author. Find a link to his recent article titled, Now is the Time for a Global Movement Demanding Nuclear De-Escalation, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In late February, climate justice activists from all over the U.S., along with a group called Arm in Arm, arrived in Birmingham, Alabama, to support local residents in their fight against the Alabama Power Company. The utility is a subsidiary of the Southern Company, which has some of the highest electricity rates in the country, and has done little to begin the transition to clean energy. The activists hung banners around town, held a teach-in, and organized a march from the company headquarters to City Hall and back, among other actions. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Michael Hansen, Executive Director of GASP, the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution. Here he describes the impact of the utility's policies and rate structure on its customers, the influence the company wields in Alabama, and the importance of support from activists outside the state during recent protest actions. Alabama Power is owned by Southern Company, um, Alabama Power is generally considered by most people, um, politicians, media, um, activists, to be the most powerful uh, company in the state, and not because they generate electricity, um, because of the, the money they, they wield and the influence they wield. So Alabama Power has one of the highest uh, guaranteed profit margins of investor-owned utilities in the country. Alabamians simultaneously have among the highest energy burdens of anywhere else in the country, typically ranking at or near the top in uh, electricity bills. And that's different from rates. Alabama Power likes to distinguish that their rates are in the middle of the pack. Well, our bills are still the highest. Alabama Power operates the single largest emitter of greenhouse gases left in the country. That's the Miller Steam Plant in Jefferson County, just outside of Birmingham city limits. Alabama Power has tons of coal ash stored in unlined pits along Alabama rivers, including the Coosa River, the Black Warrior River, the Mobile River, America's Amazon, which is the Mobile Tensaw Delta in South Alabama. They're also, at the same time, investing in new uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, including 1,900 megawatts of new gas to their generating capacity at a time when we know that we need to be 
transitioning away from fossil fuels. And probably the biggest one that we're working on right now is their what they call capacity reservation charges or what I call a sun tax. They charge customers $5.41 for the privilege of generating their own solar electricity if they're connected to the grid, and that's per kilowatt per month. So if you have a five kilowatt system on your home, you're going to pay an additional, that comes out to around $27 per month for the life of the solar panels, as long as they're connected to the grid. These fees basically double the uh, return on investment period for the solar panels. And then just to add insult to injury, Alabama Power ranks dead last in the country among the top 50 uh, investor-owned utilities for energy efficiency. So that's uh, another factor that contributes to our high electricity bills. They're not doing anything to help customers be more energy efficient at home. Michael Hansen, I understand that Alabama Power has set up its own news source. What can you tell us about that? It serves as sort of like a wire service for news agencies in the state. Um, in other words, they publish this content and they clearly say that you're free to use this if you credit Alabama News Center. And the thing is, like, if you go into the website on the About page or in the footer, you'll see that it's owned by Southern Company or Alabama Power. I forget which one it says. But, you know, most people don't look at that stuff. You know, they've hired legacy media journalists, old-fashioned, like, TV reporters and newspaper reporters. You know, one of their staff uh, actually bragged to me about this before it came out, that they were going to, you know, own the media, own the channel of communication. And, you know, at the time I was like, okay, what does that mean? The way it's most commonly used, I'll say, is for those smaller papers, like your suburbs of Birmingham, they have you know, very limited staff that they may have like some uh, interns who are doing the majority of their reporting oftentimes, and they'll use the articles from Alabama News Center to fill in, you know, columns in the paper, whether it's print or online. It's really kind of like a Alabama and Birmingham booster news outlet, and they, they weave in pro-Alabama power stories. So there's never anything critical of the power company. They're just occasional stories that are mixed in with everything else. So it doesn't really stand out as being anything fishy. Alabama Power has a foundation, and they have used that foundation to purchase the only Black-owned newspaper in Birmingham. And so that is ostensibly owned by Alabama Power now. And it's a way of um, controlling the narrative in the Black community, especially. You know, Birmingham's a 70% Black city. So it's really important to them that their image is solid in that community. So was this action a shot in the arm for people whose struggles seem to have been ignored up to now? What I was asking for was just show people that it can be done for folks outside of Birmingham to show solidarity and give us the courage to do this more going forward. That was Michael Hansen, Executive Director of the Greater Birmingham Alliance to Stop Pollution or GASP. Learn more about the group's climate work in Alabama by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
In December, workers at two Starbucks coffee stores in Buffalo, New York, voted to form a union, the first in the nation. Starbucks, the largest coffeehouse chain in the world, had fought the union drive and lost. In February, workers at a third Starbucks store in Mesa, Arizona, also voted to join the Starbucks Workers United Union, affiliated with the National SEIU, bringing the number of company-owned stores with a union to three, out of roughly 9,000 stores across the U.S. Although the union drive does not yet have the number of victories needed to make major changes at the coffee giant, these early wins have inspired Starbucks workers nationwide to begin organizing in their own local stores. Thus far, more than 100 Starbucks locations in some 26 states have filed the paperwork necessary to hold their own union election. The company, however, has been fighting back. Seven Starbucks workers in Memphis, Tennessee, were fired from their jobs in early February for alleged violations of safety and security policy. But according to union activists, these baristas were terminated for their work organizing a union. Your reporter spoke with Alex Press, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, who talks about the momentum in Starbucks workers' national union drive and the importance of the organizing drive for the wider U.S. labor movement. Even though these stores that have won are really small so far, right? There are three stores now that have officially unionized through the National Labor Relations Board. For the labor movement, the union movement writ large, it's significant because these kind of workplaces are very hard to organize. They're really small. Service workers are almost entirely non-union in the United States. And the labor movement has had a lot of trouble getting a foot in the door into union campaigns like this. And so the fact that this campaign is spreading like wildfire, you know, in just a couple months, this has spread across the majority of states. There are now union campaigns happening at stores in, I think, 28 states in the U.S. Um, It's exciting. And it also inspires other workers who work in restaurants or coffee shops to start thinking about whether they could organize their workplaces, too. And, of course, the fast food or low-wage food service model in the United States is you know, high turnover, making sure people leave before anyone starts changing anything. Um, So something like this really has the potential to actually change that model itself and, and win bigger standards for the whole industry. Alex, what are the major issues for these Starbucks workers? Is it wages? Is it working conditions? Is it benefits? Is it scheduling? I'm sure it's probably a piece of all that, but maybe you could, from, yeah. from from talking with those Starbucks baristas and other workers, what are, what are their main concerns that got them to pitch in with the union? Yeah, so you mentioned scheduling and hours, and those are definitely two really big ones, especially the fast food sector and the low-wage food service economy. The fact that hours can change on an almost daily basis sometimes, there's very few laws in place to stop a manager from changing your shift every week to something new or to giving you a full full 40 hours or 35 hours a week, right? Um, and Starbucks workers do complain about that, about unreliable scheduling, about having things changed, not making enough money to get onto health insurance benefits or other sort of stabilizing um, benefits that would come with, with full-time work. Um, so their issues are very similar to what you hear from any other like restaurant or coffee shop employee, um, which is just this feeling that you're at the whim of the boss and you can't plan a life around that, especially if you have children, for example, scheduling childcare becomes almost impossible. Um, And I go into length about that because just today, um, Starbucks workers through the the union they've built, as well as sort of just at a national level, have said that 
Starbucks is implementing a new policy to cut their hours. Um, there, some of the union supporters are actually winding up either being pushed out or fired because of this policy. And so it's really sort of a, um, it, in certain ways, kind of backfiring in that this is precisely why workers are organizing at Starbucks. And it's how Starbucks is trying to shake things up, right, by making their schedules even less sustainable. But of course, wages, other things like that are a big issue at Starbucks as well. I did want to ask you about the role of community support, solidarity. A lot of people encounter these staff people at Starbucks, you know, every day as they go to work or they come back from work or, you know, grabbing their coffee, having their names written on their cups and such. How important is that in this union drive, in your view? I think it's really important, right? I mean, Starbucks has always been, a, you know, very a progressive brand. Howard Schultz, the founder of CEO, uh, the founder of the company, um, you know, is a very political guy. And, you know, it's understood at Starbucks that you can be queer, you can be non-binary, you can wear a BLM pin. Um, you know, Starbucks is this quote-unquote progressive place, right? And so they sort of back themselves into a corner with that in that the customers expect this to be a place that treats people well. And so if the workers can make a credible case that what they want is the reasonable thing and that they're be being prevented from having it by the company, Starbucks is very vulnerable to having, you know, reputational damage from the customers. And what we've seen at the stores that are unionizing or filing for union elections is pretty remarkable community support. You know, the customers, you know, are often, you know, liberals or progressives. They're in cities. This is where these Starbucks are. They're often by campuses, universities. And so when a Starbucks union drive goes public, they hold rallies at the store. You know, the thing you mentioned about, you know, a customer is putting their name on the order so they can get it called out. Now customers, of course, are all putting all sorts of union yes and union supporter names instead of their real names to sort of show workers of the communities with them. Um, and, you know, I've seen all sorts of stories and, and heard them um, from friends where, you know, when Starbucks is holding what's called a captive audience meeting where the management sits all the workers down and tells them why a union is bad, you know, customers will stand outside and hold pro-union signs and they will remind the workers that, you know, at the end of the day, the community is with them, right? And, and no one is going to let Starbucks get away with, say, firing a union supporter. Not only is it illegal, but also the Starbucks at that store is going to have to deal with very unhappy customers. I would say that's important, and also the support of the broader labor movement is huge, right? This takes resources, it takes organizers, and it takes labor leaders speaking up and saying that they recognize that these workers winning unions is good for them as well, whether or not they're going to have members there. Um, and so far, they've been getting that, and I think that's really important um, because, you know, unions, unfortunately, sometimes snipe at each other. They don't cooperate that well. Um, but I think there's pretty unanimous consensus here that getting – some of these workplaces organized in a largely non-union sector is very important for everyone. That was Alex Press, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Find links to her recent articles tracking the progress of the Starbucks Workers' Union Drive and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.